invite you to join me in your Bibles, Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 6. And verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you also must consider or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for preserving it. And thank you for the promise that you would illuminate us to see. May you illuminate the sinner unto salvation and the saint to further sanctification. And we thank you for an open Bible in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Now, we read the entire portion of Romans 6, 1 through 11. That is one separate unit, though we broke it down in three separate, though they're inseparably linked. And we looked at verses 1 through 4, and we defined the new life, where Paul would make the statement that uh, it is absolutely nonsense to think that you can claim to be a Christian, claim to be born again, and yet not, uh, not be changed in your lifestyle. He would say, what shall we do? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says it's preposterous. Of course you cannot. And so he, he, we went through and we defined what this newness of life looks like so that we would find assurance, that we would look and say, well, these are the marks of the new life, so uh, evidently I have uh, God's grace in Christ Jesus. And now we, we're moving into uh, the second part of this, verses 5 through 11, 5 through 11. Uh, it also has a third part, verses 12 through 14, which we will get to, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. So verses 5 through 11, we're not going to cover all of that. We're only going to look at the first couple verses of 5 through uh, 7. Uh, but there are three things within this text. The first one is there is a thesis statement. That is uh, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I say it's a thesis statement because if you notice, he's summarizing what he's just said in verses 1 through 4 by the first part of verse 5. For if we be united with him in a death like his, the whole of verses 1 through 4 was about Paul telling us that we died with Christ. Then he's going to attach in verse 5, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, which is the second part of the thesis, which is further defined in verses um, uh, 5 through 11. What he basically is doing is he's a continuance of what he said with adding to it, and that is our expansion or our union in Christ, not only in his death, in his resurrection. So the first thing is the thesis itself, verse 5. Then the thesis is developed in verses 6 through 10, which we won't read again. And then the third thing that he will reveal to us is the application. 
or the summary application found in verse 11. And that's easy to see where he says the word, so then. Since this, so then. And he will expand that further in verses 12 and 14. And what we want to do then is we want to look at just what he's telling us. This is extremely important, as I've told you before. Romans 6 is one of the most important chapters if you're going to live the Christian life successfully. Uh, Romans 6 is, is application, it's practice. It sets us up to work through verse, uh, chapter 7, which is the dark place, back into ver- uh, chapter 8, which is a very encouraging place. And so in Romans 6, verses 5 through 7, we will see our union with Christ in our death. He's already stated that, stated that in the first four verses, but now he expounds that. And then in verses 8 through 10, he will talk about our union with Christ in his resurrection, and that will be for further on time. And then in verse 11, our union with Christ applied, and its application is first in our thinking, not in our living which that is the whole of the Christian life. It begins with what you think determines how you live. Now, but I want to do something first before we get into uh, the actual five through seven, our union with Christ in death, because Paul does something here that we need to be aware of as he writes his letters. And when you read Paul's letters, I, I would encourage you to read them in two ways. One, read them and learn what he's teaching us. That is the purpose, is that we would learn uh, to do, that we would learn who God is, walk with him, and do. So we read Paul's letters learning uh, what he's teaching us. But I also would encourage you to read Paul's letters to see his heart and to see his life. To see his heart and to see his life. Because what he provides for us is the model Christian. Is the model Christian. You say, well, obviously it's the Apostle Paul. But what you will read in his letters, you will find a man that is transparent, a man that is vulnerable, a a man who's not able, is not afraid to share his struggles, and a man who is also not afraid to share his affections for other believers. So he does this in Romans, and he will do that in Philippians, and he will do that in Colossians, and he certainly does it in the pastoral epistles. He does it in Philemon. So when you read Paul, don't read just to get knowledge Read to get his heart and to see his heart. And what he says in verses 6 through 9 is a glimpse into his heart. And it is a heart that we all must have in regards to conviction. In conviction. I want you to look in verse 5 and what he says in verse 6 and verse 9. He uses certain words here which reveal to us a personal conviction. And his personal conviction was about the gospel and about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this is in the text, but it's not the exposition of that text in our union in Christ in death and his resurrection. That will come. But one of, the, one of the great needs of Christians today in the culture is to be Christians of conviction. Is be uh, Christians who are absolute convinced and bold in the truths that they proclaim they believe. Because it's only women and men of God who have conviction and churches who have strong biblical conviction about three things, the Lord Jesus, the scripture, and the gospel who are going to make a difference in culture. Because you can say that you have conviction, but the evidence of conviction will be seen not in what we say, but in how we live. And the Apostle Paul, no doubt, was a man of conviction. In verse 5, look what, he, look what he says. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, 
be united with him. So he could have said, if we, we, we have been united with him in death like his, we shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. You know, that, that is true. But notice what he adds. We shall certainly. There's a word of conviction. There's a word of confidence. There's a word of power in that word certainly. It's like taking John 3.16 and remove the word so. For God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you see the difference? So the Apostle Paul, in writing to these Romans, young Christians he hasn't seen yet, throughout his letter, he is going to share not only the truth that they need to be convicted of, convicted not in a sense of repentance, but convicted of truth, is he's going to model that for them. He says here, listen, we died with him without a question. That's what certainly means. Without question, we are going to rise with him. And when you're, when you're at the end of life and we're on, on deathbed or at the sake of the martyrs, you read them, what, was the, what, what propelled them or sustained them? The certainty of the resurrection, the certainty of identification with Christ. Now go down to verse 6. He's another word of conviction. He starts out with, we know. He didn't say, well, we, we think or we hope. No, we know. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Then verse 9. We know, we don't think, or we don't speculate, or we don't hope. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Friends, it's important that we develop biblical convictions that change that changes our lives. Jerry Bridges identified what conviction is. And he said a conviction is a determinative belief. A determinative belief, something you believe so strongly that it affects the way you live. I can profess Jesus Christ as Savior, but if that, that profession isn't changing the way I live, it is a false profession. There has to be the conviction, like the Apostle Paul, with certainty that he knew and that he wants them to know and he wants us to know. If you trace the Apostle Paul's conviction... In the book of Acts, before the elders at Ephesus, he's getting ready to depart from them. And this is what he says, but I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. There was no self-survival. There was no self-preservation. He says, if only I may finish my course and the minister receive from the Lord Jesus. He was under the strong conviction that all that mattered in life was that he would fulfill the will of God in his life. And when it came to uh, him going back to Jerusalem, he's in the house of Philip in Caesarea. The, the believers are urging him, go, 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 don't go to Jerusalem. Great harm awaits you. And Paul would say, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That wasn't a profession like Peter. When Peter says, I'll even die for you. Peter's was impulsive. Paul was a man of conviction. Why? Because he was apprehended on the road to Damascus and he never lost it. Well, he would pass this down to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, his last letter, he would tell Timothy, but I am not ashamed for I know, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced or persuaded that he is able to keep or guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. 
I can't stress this enough because I seem to see it in my own life and we need to see it in your life and we need to see it in the church's life in the day in which we live. Christians must be people of convincing conviction of the Lord Jesus and not just among us. There must be conviction about the Lord Jesus. There must be conviction about the scripture and there must be conviction about the gospel. And Paul has this conviction as it's embedded throughout the book of Romans. And I've shown you at least three here in Romans chapter 6 where it reveals his heart of conviction. And I just want to share just briefly these three areas of building a life of conviction. Number one is that we must build a life of conviction about the person of Jesus Christ. And that in particular in two areas. Number one, his authority over us. His authority over us. When the Apostle Paul was on the Damascus Road and he was apprehended by Jesus, he, in three times in the book of Acts, he shares what happened to him. Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. In Acts 26, before King Agrippa, he says this, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Do you see that the whole apprehension of Jesus Christ, of Paul on the Damascus Road, so that he would become a submissive, willing servant with no holds barred. Paul was all in about the person of Jesus Christ. That he would say to Agrippa, he would say to the pagan world, he would say to the religious world, that I was not disobedient to what Christ has called me to do. Because Paul understood, and Christians today must understand, that when Christ calls us, he calls us to a life of total submission to him as Lord in all areas of life. There's not areas that you hold back. He's Lord of my life, but not of my money. He's Lord of my life, but he's not Lord of my job. He's, not, he's Lord of my life, but he's not Lord, Lord of my discretionary time. And we could go on and on. If he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And so there must be this conviction that Jesus is Lord over us and his absolute authority over us. That's what makes bold Christians. That's what makes Apostle Paul's. That's what makes martyrs. That was, that's what make people who are salt and light. And remember, Jesus did not command us to be salt and light in the church. You are the salt and light of the world. It includes the church. But I think the church in America today has become so irrelevant. The pressure of culture, the church has become so irrelevant, and we can push and point fingers at the government, at the president, at Congress. We can push at school, school committees. We can push it all. You know, the problem isn't all those unsaved people captured by devil. The problem is the paralyzed passive church. And it's a paralyzed passive church because in many ways we've retreated from culture and we've become cocoons of everything Christian. Is that We're not the bold and courageous like the early church that turned the world upside down, and I know that's kind of hyperbole when they talked about in Jerusalem, but nevertheless, they did have impact on culture, and the impact on culture was because they were firmly convinced about the authority of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's one of the most penetrating questions that you could ever, ever be asked of you. And here's why it makes that uncomfortable for us, because of the one asking it. I could ask you a question about your spiritual life, and you could, you could tell me whatever you wanted. I wouldn't know. You could ask me about my spiritual life. Say, oh, I'm, I'm entirely sanctified. I live on Mount Transfiguration all the time. <laughs> you, you could say that to me, you know, and you might become envious because you might believe me. 
But what about when the Lord of glory looks at you and says, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I tell you? He already knows the answer. It's very uncomfortable, especially if we're holding back. But if you understand and you have conviction of the biblical Jesus, then you understand that when he died and rose from the dead, he bought you with a price, his blood, and that he bought all of you, not part of you, and that you are his to do uh, what he will do with you, not what you want to do with him. You don't bring Jesus as part of your life. Jesus becomes your life. Remember what he did when he washed his feet? He washes the feet and he says to the disciples, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. And I think not only has the church lost its relevancy in culture because I'm not sure we really are convinced that Jesus Christ has authority over us. He says go into all the world and preach the gospel. He told us to serve one another and love one another. He says, deny yourself for the sake of the gospel and myself. He tells us to you know, carry one another's burdens. I'm not sure, and I'm not saying this is an indictment on any of you. I'm just saying what I observe and see the irrelevancy of the, and the lack of the gospel penetration in the community. I'm wondering if the church really believes that he's Lord. I wonder if he really is Lord of my life. And by the way, you don't receive Jesus as Savior. You make him Lord of your life later. I've heard that before. Where does that come from? He is Lord. And you receive him as he is. And I think not only does this apply to us in, in regards to the irrelevancy of culture, but not only are we kind of maybe reluctant to believe the authority of Christ, but how about this? If we had conviction of Jesus Christ, then we'd shape our, our lives around the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Do you live in light of judgment? Do you know what this life is all about? Preparing for that day. That's what it's about. It's about preparing for that day. It shouldn't make you afraid as a Christian. You're not going to be, you're not going to be standing in front of him and, and giving account for your sins. You don't, don't do, you're going to, he's there eager to reward his servants. As the authority, we are to align our, li, li, align our lives around that authority. We also, if we have conviction about Jesus Christ, it's, we are convinced of his care over us, his care. As the apostle Paul knew this, Though he was a super Christian, if we want to use that term, I don't like it, but I just used it, is that he's, he's, he was afraid. He was afraid. In Acts chapter 18, he's in Corinth, corrupt Corinth, and the Lord appears to Paul at night and says, don't not be afraid. Why? Because he was. Don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent. Why? For I am with you. Friends, not only... Do we develop the conviction of the Lord Jesus Christ as the absolute authoritative figure over us? But we also, we also look to the Lord Jesus and see him, see him in his care over us, his shepherding care over us. What does that mean? That means that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear. We don't have to worry. He says, I am the good shepherd. And I care for my own. We are the sheep of his pasture. So we can be bold in the culture. And we don't have to be afraid of what culture will do. For what can man do to me when the good shepherd is watching over us? So that's the conviction that certainly Paul had. And I gave you examples of that. He tells the Romans, we know. We are certain. And from my own life, I know it's true. Develop the conviction of the authority of Christ. Of the care for Christ. But also develop the conviction about the origin of the Bible. Where did the Bible come from? 2 Timothy 3.16, we know all scriptures breathed out by God. It was obviously Paul's commitment and conviction of the Bible. It came from God. He wrote most of it, the New Testament. He preached it. 
He lived it. He suffered for it. And the Bible has long stood the test. And so if I was to ask every one of you, Christians, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? You're going to tell me without question, yes, it is the Word of God. Now, if I walked, if I followed you for the last seven days, would your time in the Word convince me that you believe it is the Word of God? You could tell me I believe it's the Word of God. If it's the Word of God and you believe that, then why aren't you reading it every day? And why aren't you looking for ways to put it into your life? If I truly love the, the God of the Word, I'm going to want to spend time with the God of the Word. It makes sense. I mean, I can tell, Joy, I just love you, but you know what? I'm, we're just not going to spend any time this week. I love you, Joy, but uh, I, I don't have time to talk to you. That would be so, that would be so crazy. But you know, is that not what we tell God when we would substitute Netflix for the Bible? Or spend 35, 40 minutes? Well, maybe it means 15, but it turns into an hour and a half of scrolling through your, your feed. And when you could sit down and maybe pray for a half hour for other people. I'm not pointing at you. I'm... If there's a conviction about the Bible, then the conviction will lead to being in the Bible. If there's a conviction about the authority of Christ, then we will submit to the authority of Christ. If there's submission about the care of the Lord Jesus, then we will be bold and we won't lie awake at night be wrapping ourselves around the actual over the what-ifs of the world. And then finally, there's got to be a conviction about the gospel. Conviction about the gospel. We really are in Romans. I know you may not believe that, but we, for the last 10 minutes... The point is, is that when you read your Bible, see the author. Don't just see what the author means or what the author wrote. See the author. And Paul models for us as a man of conviction. And he writes to the, to, to the Romans as a man of conviction. He knew He knew Christ, and thus he recognized the authority of Christ in his life. He knew Christ, thus he recognized the shepherding care of Christ. And he was convinced of the, of the authority of the Scripture and the divine origin of the Scripture where he was willing to write these letters and willing to die for this book. And now the conven- we must be convinced of the priority of the gospel. Are you convinced right now that your neighbors who are outside of Christ, that if they die without the gospel, they are going to hell? And the answer is yes, you do. And now my next question did you. Are you praying for your neighbors to come to Christ? Are you even praying, God, give me venues to get the gospel into my neighbors? my co-workers, my unsafe family members. And I'm not talking about going knocking them over with a 42-pound Bible. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about loving them enough that you want to love them redemptively. You want to be what Jesus was labeled by, not his people, a friend of sinners. There's no question Paul was convinced of the prayer of the gospel. He starts out Romans chapter 1 with, I am eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power. It's the power. Of God into salvation. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, he would give us the clearest definition of the gospel. For, for I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, for which you receive, by which you stand, are being saved. For I delivered you of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according with the scripture. Do you see? Here's his life of conviction. He mentions Christ dies for our sin, he mentions the scriptures, and then he mentions the priority of the gospel. Friends, that's our three priorities in life as Christians. The absolute authority of Jesus Christ and care over us. The the divine origin and the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture and the priority of the gospel. That is the foundations of the Christian life. And that's what we have to build conviction about. He would go on and say he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. 
Uh, and I've spent time on this because I'm convinced that we need to be men of con- and women of conviction. And conviction is only conviction if it transforms our lives. And there's absolutely no way that I can claim to know Jesus Christ and the, author- and, and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and it not transform every area of my life. It must because he's the, he's the king. He's the redeemer. He bought me. I'm not my own. And if you know him, you're not your own either. You have absolutely no right to pick and choose about your life. You don't. As we will see later on in Romans 6, we are slaves to righteousness. A slave has rendered every right, everything to the master. And here's the greatest, the greatest thing about being under the yoke of Jesus Christ and his authority. You know what the greatest thing about that is? Is your greatest enjoyment, your greatest freedom, and your greatest uh, pleasure in life is being a slave of Jesus Christ. It is. It's not being a slave to what you want to do. And if you're living your life based on what you want to do or what your desires, I would argue that you're probably struggling for joy in the Christian experience. That if, you, if you're trying to figure out, that, you know, what I want to do, and you're maybe throwing a token prayer to God, which is really just God, this, you want him to bless what you've already decided you want to do. And how many times have we done that? And probably all of you to some extent. I want to justify my own personal desires and make it a little bit spiritual. Friends, this is what Paul is getting at in Romans 6. Is that there must be a conviction about Christ, died with him, rose with him. There must be conviction about the scripture that defines this gospel. And there must be a conviction about the priority of the gospel. Friends, the world around us only has one message for their salvation. The world around them only have one message to receive, and that's what we carry, the gospel. And friends, I, I, I'm not trying to, to, to beat sheep. I would never do that. But here's the reality of it. We're way too silent with the gospel. We're way too silent with the gospel. I, I'm not talking about you got to go. Don't get out here and go knock on every door in your neighborhood this afternoon. That's all I'm talking about. But are you so burdened for the, unlo- for the unsaved people around that you can't help but pray for them? When you drove through your neighborhoods this morning and you came to church, did, did you look around and say, Lord, save my neighbors? Lord, please send revival to my town. Or maybe you're saying, Lord, how can I reach my neighbors? So that's what Paul does. He, he certainly uses words of conviction. And, and, and I would challenge you to develop that conviction. And, and don't gloss over. Don't say, yes, I believe that Jesus is Lord. Yes, he's the authority of my life. Go through and evaluate every area of your life and see indeed if that's true. And then ask yourself the divine authority of Scripture. Is Scripture determining your decisions? Is is, is Scripture determining your decisions where it may go against what you want? Is Scripture your guidepost, your guideline, your map, your uh, your GPS throughout all of life? Is Scripture it? That would would give evidence of your your falling falling under its uh, authority, its... It's inspiration. And our, do you have a conviction about the gospel? First in your own home and then in the people around us. The minute that we as a church move away from the priority of the gospel, uh, it's probably not long till Ichabod is written upon us. It didn't take long for the churches of Ephesus to go away, or the churches of the Revelation to go away. All right, let's go now. Let's go into uh, Romans 6. <laughs> I think that's important, though. It's... Um, it's important in your life. It's important in the life of your families. Because it's only, only Christians of conviction will make a difference. If you have no conviction, it's, and 
and your life's not changed by this gospel, then you really don't believe it. And if you don't have a conviction about the authority of Jesus Christ, if you don't understand he's the creator, he's the, he is the potter, he's the redeemer, if you don't have a strong conviction that you're not your own, then you really don't believe he is. And if you don't have conviction about the Bible being the word of God, and it's given to you so that you would know God, and that you would follow God, and you find that there's dust collecting on your Bible because you haven't opened it in four days, you really don't believe it's the word of God. You say, well, yeah, I do. No, no you've got to understand. We, got, we, must, we must understand that James makes it very clear. Don't be a hearer only, uh, but be a doer of the word, not uh, deceiving your own self. We cannot deceive ourselves about the, the, the conviction of who Jesus is. We can't deceive ourselves about what the scripture is, and we can't deceive ourselves about what the gospel is. Because at, at, say, at stake is our own eternal state, but also it's the state of our mission as a church. So I don't apologize for uh, kind of taking a small detour out of Romans. Because I think if you study the life of the Apostle Paul in every letter, including Romans, that's what his pulse was. His pulse was Christ. His pulse was the scripture. And his pulse was the gospel. And it would do you well and do me well to skid alone, even today, remember, and ask ourselves the question, is he Lord of my life? Now, if you answer that yes, it's going it's to change a lot of things. It's going to change how you view church, for one thing. Church isn't something that you carve out an hour and a half on Sunday. Church becomes your life because of his people. Because you start immersing yourself in the body life and you start growing. So that's one thing. And there's a whole bunch more that I could spend the next 30 minutes, but I'm not going to because that's not what we're doing. It'd be easy to do. Uh, But let's look at Romans 6, uh, verse 6. And and I want us to approach this here. We, we, We likely won't get it all done. Um, today, but I want us to look at the text uh, 6 and 7 verses 6 and 7 and ask three questions of these two verses ask three questions of these verses and then there's one summary application uh, that we want to make the first one is what happened to us at Christ's death. It's what Paul is saying to these Romans now. He says, verse 5, and says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And here's, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So notice what he's saying. We know that our old self was crucified. So what happened at Christ's death? Because he's already identified Christ dying, but now he adds this dimension that our old self died. This is, a, this is the Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now I want you to ponder with me the implications of this. Is that Paul is not saying that part of my life has been crucified with Christ. The the totality of who he was was crucified with Christ. Martin Luther, uh, his favorite verse was Galatians 2.20. And Luther says, Whereby sin, the devil, and and death are crucified in Christ and not in me. So Luther would make the right distinction that it's Christ who died. And that's what Paul's doing. He focuses first on what Christ did, dying for death, for the devil. And then he brings us into that. And Luther would say that the devil and death are crucified in Christ, not in me. Here Christ does all alone. But I, 
believing in Christ and by faith, crucified also with Christ, so that these things are crucified and dead to me. That's the, this, this is the most important truth you'll ever learn as a Christian. Is your identification and my identification in Christ's death and resurrection. That is the whole of the power source, if there's a better word, I don't know. The whole power source of the Christian life is our union in the one who rose from the dead. But in order for him to rise from the dead, he had to die. And Paul would say this, this absolutely profound statement. We know, we have a certainty that our old self was crucified with him. Calvin would add, the old man, that's what the old self is, ESV, it translates the old man. Calvin would say the old man is fastened to the cross of Christ. Do you see yourself like that in a, in a practical way every day? Have you visited to where you think in your mind, wait a minute, that crucifixion that happened 2,000 plus years ago, that wasn't just Christ alone. I'm there. I, I'm hanging there. Well, that's the, the next question then is also found in verse 6, that what happened to us, we were crucified with Christ. Well, who was crucified with Christ? Who? Paul would say the old self. The old self. He says, we know that the old self was crucified or the old man was crucified. This isn't the first time that he would mention the old man or the old self. He would also do that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. He says, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So put off your old man. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. That's an indication of who this person is that was crucified. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's the definition of the old man. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self or the new creation that he says is in Christ, in the death and the resurrection of Christ. That's what a believer is, the new creature united with Christ in his death and resurrection. He says, so that we were, we'd be created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he points us back to the created order that we were created in the, in the very beginning of Genesis, in God's likeness, in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul tells us in Ephesians, that, and tied into Romans, that this old self... This old self is crucified, or the old person we were in Adam was crucified with Christ so that when he rose and the new life, the new self is in us, we now walk as this new creature in the, the image of the God that's now been restored so that we can fulfill our original purpose. Our purpose of salvation is that we would walk in the likeness replicating, not deity, but replicating or representing or shining the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through his people. That's what we are called to do. We are called to reflect that glory. And do you know what impacts the world out there more than anything? It's our Christ-likeness. It's, 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 it's our ability to articulate what has happened to us that's reflected in the way we live. And that's what conviction is. He would also, in Colossians 3, mention the old self. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, the old man, with its practices. The old self or the old man is basically our identity in Adam. He's already spent much time talking about the two humanities, in Adam, in Christ. The old self is what we were in Adam. Totally depraved, corrupt to the core, 
everything about us in the old self. And what does he say about the old self? That the old self has been crucified. Since this occurs on the cross, which is what verse 6 tells us, that means that our spiritual history, all of us that are Christians, it began in time and space at the cross. That's when this transformation has occurred. We died with him on the cross and separately linked to the resurrection. Thus, we become these new, new people that the old self no longer identifies us. And it's, it's vital that we understand the radical nature of new birth. Because new birth replaces what we are in Adam, or I should say destroys Adam in us, that we become the new people in Christ, not to go back to what we were. That's what makes Romans 6, 1 and 2 absolutely nonsense. What? Can we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we, basically, we could say, wait a minute. You profess to be a new creature in Christ, but yet Adam still is alive and well in you? You're still living like Adam? You're still doing all those things that you did prior to with no remorse, no regret, but yet you claim to be a new creature? We need to talk. Because that's just, it's incompatible with what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that if you understand that when Christ died, you died. You, the total you, the old self, so that you would no longer live the old you. Hence, verse 4, the newness of life. Now, as I read these verses in uh, Ephesians and Colossians, you might say, well, wait a minute, Jim. He's saying that we are to put off the old self. We have to put these practices off. But you're telling me that I died with Christ. Uh, That doesn't, no... The responsibility of newness of life, walking in newness of life, lies within us. And here is the truth about the crucifixion with Christ. Yes, we died with him. Christ died uh, for sin so that we would, when we die with him, we would die to sin. Is that it's the union that causes us positionally to live out practically the new life. And it begins in how you think. For instance, say you're tempted. I'm getting way ahead of myself, uh, but we'll, we'll do it anyway. Um, let's take, for instance, your, it's, it's found in verses uh, 12 through 14. And so that's a couple weeks ahead. So, yeah. It's in 12 through 14. We'll get there. It'll be a couple weeks, so you'll forget it. Here, here's, but here's a, here's, a prat, here's a practical application, and this is a serious thing. Uh, this is a practical application. When you're tempted to do any sin, and, and pick your sin. Pick your bosom sin. Pick the sin that you struggle with. Maybe it's internet pornography. Maybe it's uh, uh, anger. Maybe it's loose tongue. Maybe it's whatever. Pick your, and you're tempted to do that sin. How do you deal with it? Do you resolve not to do it? You say, I'm just not going to do it. I would argue that if that's your tactic to defeat temptation, you are failing more than you will ever achieve. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go to that website, click. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get heated in this, this conversation. And then next day, you know, three minutes later, you're, 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 it's volleying out of there. It's coming out like Proverbs says, like a sword th- thrust, your tongue. If you try to defeat temptation in the strength of yourself or your personal resolve, you will fail all the time. So how do you do that? 
Well, let's take let's take because it, it is an absolute just. If there ever is a pandemic, it's it's in our it's in our country. It's that of pornography, and so it's affecting the church. It's affecting uh, pastors. It's affecting uh, everyone. So, so you're tempted. You're tempted. And the way it used to be, we were talking about this the other day to someone uh, old school like me. I said, yeah, when you wanted to, to look at any of that stuff, you really had to go look for it. And you had to go behind the counter in the grocery stores and you had to ask for the, the magazine or whatever. Now it's on your phone and you can do it anytime you want to. And so if you're tempted to do that, would you do that just for example? It could be coveting. It could be anything. Is it whatever you are tempted to do, if you try to do it in the strength of yourself, you are going to fail. This is, what we just talked about is how you do it. Is when you're tempted, you say, wait a minute. That temptation is feeding my old self. My old self has been crucified with Christ. If the old self is dead, and I'm a new person in Christ, and thus the power of his resurrection, that temptation coming from the old self, I don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. You know what that is? That's exercising faith in your union in Jesus Christ. That's what that is. And I would say that if you did that and every temptation, you will not fall to any temptation. What are you doing? You're exercising faith in what Paul has said has already happened to you. Is that you already died to that. And because you're dead to it, you don't have to give to it. And you rose from the dead so that you have the power. You know the reason why, even as Christians, why we don't do that is because we want to fulfill the temptation. Because we actually, we actually fall to it because the pleasures of sin is just that. It's not the resolve of a Moses, remember? Re- Moses refused the pleasures of Egypt. He refused. And so what Paul is telling us here in verse 6 is that who was crucified, it was our old self. And I just gave you an example of what practical Christian living is. It is not. It is not legalism or religiosity. It is practical Christianity living at our union with Christ. James Boyce said this, The secret to victory over sin is not the crucifixion or killing of the old self for the simple reason that the old self has already died. That is why the Bible never tells us to crucify the old man. How can we if he's already been put to death? So can you see the logic behind this? In our personal resolve to try to defeat temptation, we're not identifying with Paul says in Romans 6, is it 6, 6, is that we're not identifying with Christ's death. What we're doing is we're trying to kill something that has already been killed by him in the strength of ourself, and we can never do that. There's a distinction there, and we need to learn that. That's why this union in Christ is so important. So we asked the question then, uh, what happened to us? Uh, we were, uh, self was crucified. Who was crucified? Self. Our old identity in Adam, our whole being. Now, notice in verse 6 here. Here's the third question. The third question is, why did this happen? Why, why was the old self crucified? Well, Paul would give us that in the words in the ESV, in order that. So he's kind of given an application or given the, the answer to why this is happening. Verse uh, 6, we know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now there's two reasons why in these verses, there's two reasons why this happened. The first one is to render the instrument of sin powerless. To render the instrument of sin powerless. Now notice what he says here. The old self was crucified. And then he says the body of sin might be brought to nothing. They're not the same. 
The old self and the body of sin is not the same. Now, it would be easy to say, well, the body of sin, because a body has to be crucified. It's not a literal crucifixion, obviously. But this body of sin, it's not the old self. It is the instrument that the old self uses to commit sin. When we look at the instrument of sin, it's the body. Once empowered by our old self, it's now rendered inoperative. Notice what he says, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. John Murray said this, quote, The expression, the body of sin, would mean the body as conditioned and controlled by sin. End quote. Let me ask you, how does most of us, we have to have an instrument of sin. Now, I know we sin inwardly. I know we sin by attitude, we sin by thought, but do we not also sin by body? Our bodies are the instruments of sin. And it includes our senses. Thomas Manton said, Sin is gotten within us by the soul, but it's taken possession of the body. And the gate of the senses let it in, and other powers of the body are as ready to let it out. Read the list of sins of the flesh, and notice how many of them are exercised by the body, whether it be our tongue, whether it be our hands, whatever. And so Paul was saying that the old self, that, that, that old Adam that was constantly pushing the body to exercise itself in nothing but sin, that old self has been, has been crucified, so the body of sin itself has been rendered inoperative. What happened to Genesis, Genesis when the fall? What did the devil do? Told Eve, got to Eve to doubt, it was inward. And then he, it said, and the woman saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. Saul, the body. Satan puts, puts the, the temptation, is the body. She saw. What about Job 31? He says, I made a promise or made a covenant. I will not look upon a maid. His eyes. Jesus says, whoever looks upon a woman to lust, the eyes. So Paul was saying, if we live the union with Christ, if we live crucified with him, then, then the old self which is the, the energy source, the body of sin, that old self is rendered, is crucified. That means the body of sin now has been rendered inoperative. That does not mean that you won't have battles. But it does mean that the instrument of sin is powerless. And Paul would go on in verses uh, 12 through 14, which we will get, and he says we're supposed to yield our members, the body, to instruments of righteousness when we once delivered it unto sin. But notice something else in verse 6. We're going to wind this down with this. There's a second reason why. So we, we ask the questions. Who died with Christ? Old self. And then we've asked the question is, you know, uh, about, um, uh, third question, who, who did this? Why did this happen? And the first one is to break the, uh, or I should say to render the instrument of sin powerless. And the second one, look at verse 6 uh, again. So that we would no longer be enslaved or serve, or serve or be slaves to sin. So he, there's another conclusion statement. The first one is in order that the body of sin might be brought. So that, so that it builds on itself. So this crucifixion of the old self, it was done so that the body of sin, the instrument of sin would be rendered, in power, rendered in, in, uh, without power. But he said so that what? Or the conclusion is that we wouldn't be under the mastery of sin any longer. He says to break the, it's to break the bondage of internal and external sins. He says that you would no longer be enslaved. Think about what you were before you came to Christ. 
All you were was sin. All you were was sin. You were, you were oppressed. You were held captive. You were enslaved. And all that to sin and death. What happens when the gospel comes? Well, we know what Luke 4 tells us. The wonderful gospel tells us, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That is to ensure that the mastery of sin has been broken. And that's the power of the gospel. And so if you're here today and you're outside of Jesus Christ, your religion cannot break those chains. Your good works cannot break those chains. Your resolve to do better cannot break those chains. The only thing you can do is run to Jesus Christ, His authority, His care, and embrace Him for who He says He is, the one who has come to set the captives free, the one who has come to set you free from the oppression of sin, of Satan, and of death. And if you leave here today and you haven't received Him and believe upon Him, you are still in that bondage and there's nothing you can do to break it. But I got good news for you. If you come to Him, then you're going to know that that old self has been crucified and that your past is gone. You become a new creature, and I don't care how bad your past is because every one of us here has baggage, everybody. All that stuff, all that baggage is lost, and you're never going to see it again if you run to Christ. And so as we see this, and we'll pick up uh, uh, the conclusion of verse 7 next week, so... Uh, but the point here is today is Paul has shown us what a life of conviction looks like. He then has told us what has occurred is that we have died with Christ. The old self is dead. And as a result, we're no longer under the mastery of sin, Satan, and death. And that we are to walk in this newness because the old is dead. The body is rendered ineffective as we define our unity in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great word and please help us and help those who have yet to come to Christ that they would see that in him is liberty, in him is freedom, freedom from the the chains and the bondage of the devil. And may you be pleased to uh, open up the eyes of us as Christians that we would learn to live the crucified and risen with Christ's life and that we would live out the victory over sin, temptation that he has already accomplished for us not to try to do the futility and the strength of ourselves. And so, Father, thank you for Christ's sake. Amen.